Hello everybody, and welcome to something a little bit different from your usual 80 days episode. As you know, we're working on season 3, but due to work commitments, honeymoons and so on, it's not quite ready yet, so we thought we'd treat you to something a little bit different, a new format we're trying out. This is the first of a short series of what we're calling mini-sodes. Shorter episodes focused on one particular time and place, with one of the hosts taking the lead and telling you the story. We hope you enjoy this change to regular programming, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can always email us at 80daypodcast at gmail.com or find us at 80daypodcast on most social media platforms. With no further ado, on with the show. I am willing to wager £20,000 that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? Don't accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi everyone, Luke here from the 80 Days team. Today's story is a Christmas tale, but it isn't quite as cheery as the ones you might be used to. It takes place in Hong Kong, where I've lived for over three years. Today, as then, Skyscrapers dominate the skyline, the air is warm and humid, and east and west meet at the southern edge of China. As we begin our story, war is raging across Europe, and the Japanese Imperial Army has set out to conquer Asia, bringing it right to the doorstep of this city. But hundreds of miles away, other plans are brewing, plans that will change the course of the war and the world. December 7th, 1941. In the Pacific Ocean, just 230 miles north of Hawaii, lies a fleet of six Japanese aircraft carriers, waiting to fly to Pearl Harbor. The Japanese Imperial Army hadn't declared war on the United States, but it had made its presence felt across Asia. That same morning... As bombs were still falling on the U.S. naval base in Hawaii, Japanese troops massed north of the border in the new territories of Hong Kong. This was where China ended and the British colony began. Japan also hadn't declared war in Britain, but that would all change very soon. Just a quick refresher on Hong Kong geography right here. The so-called New Territories is the northernmost part of what we call Hong Kong today. And it shares a land border with China. Slightly further south is Kowloon, which is the most densely populated area of Hong Kong. The shoreline of Kowloon lies across Victoria Harbour from Hong Kong Island. Lush green mountains tower over the city, and the weather in December 1941 was described by Canadian soldiers as warm, but not unpleasantly so. Hong Kong's population had swelled over the previous three years as refugees had fled over the border from the war, many settling in the walled city of Kowloon, and you can see our back catalogue for more on that place. So the British colonists found it difficult to maintain order. Regular trade with China had been disrupted by the conflict, and the war was edging closer and closer to the city, causing panic among its residents. 
In response, General Ismay, Commander-in-Chief of the Far East, had urged Prime Minister Churchill to send reinforcements to Hong Kong. This is what he said. This is all wrong. If Japan goes to war, there is not the slightest chance of holding Hong Kong or relieving it. It is most unwise to increase the loss we should suffer there. Instead of increasing the garrison, it ought to be reduced to a symbolical scale. Japan will think twice before declaring war on the British Empire, and whether there are two or six battalions in Hong Kong will make no difference to her choice. I wish we had fewer troops there, but to move any would be noticeable and dangerous. Churchill's cabinet, however, disagreed with him and persuaded him that the colony needed defending due to its strategic position in South China Sea. Churchill then called on Canada and Prime Minister Mackenzie King sent two battalions to Hong Kong. Ruling over the 10,000 men charged with defending the territory was Major General Christopher M. Maltby, a 50-year-old Indian Army officer who was under no false illusions as to the inadequacy of his resources or the tremendous odds he was facing. Canadian troops had just arrived in the city and were enjoying the cheap beer, mild weather, and colonial entertainments on offer. Also, defending the city were ranks of British and Indian soldiers, as well as local Hong Kongers. None of them had an idea of the fate that awaited them. Just a few short hours after the bombs fell on Pearl Harbor, the surprise attack began. Almost all of the Allied planes in Hong Kong were destroyed on the runway by Japanese bombers, eliminating any air power the British forces had in the early hours of the battle. The suddenness of the attack followed the same pattern as Pearl Harbor and had a similar devastating impact. The initial sweep of the Kowloon Peninsula and the new territories was swift and merciless. The Japanese invaders fought with a ferocity that the defenders had neither expected nor prepared for. The Allies had, however, anticipated an attack. They'd formed a line across the narrowest point of the Kowloon Peninsula, known as the Gin Drinker's Line. This would be where the invaders would be halted, or at least held back for a time. Within 30 minutes of the initial attack, all road and rail bridges across the frontier were down. British generals had estimated that the area would hold out for at least a month against any Japanese attack. In reality though, Japanese forces overran it in less than a week, with Canadian and Indian forces fleeing across the harbour with Japanese troops hot on their heels on December 13th. The defenders demonstrated incredible bravery in facing battle-hardened Japanese troops, many of whom were veterans by this point in the war, having fought all over the Pacific. Many of the Canadian grenadiers, by contrast, had never fired a single shot in anger. Battalions from both Indian Army regiments from the British Raj earned battle honours in the fighting throughout Kowloon and were the last to depart for the relative safety of Hong Kong Island, 
The defenders now had a moment of respite, but the break in the fighting was an ominous one. Similarly to the Battle of Singapore, and that's another shameless plug for another episode from our back catalogue, the Allied forces now lay across a narrow stretch of water from the enemy, knowing that an attack was imminent, but not knowing where or when it would fall. Here's just one of the defenders, Bob Clayton, a Canadian grenadier, on the night that he spent across the water from the Japanese forces. It was horrible. The screams and all night long was just, I don't know what they were doing when they got in there. I guess they were looting and everything else, but that whole city was just one massive scream all night long. Just raise the hair in the back of your head. Propaganda had assured the Allied forces that the Japanese soldiers were easily put off by seasickness and that they couldn't see well at night. In reality, it was the British command that had been short-sighted. The island's largest guns and strongest defences were on the south side of the island, built to defend from attacks from sea. The Japanese forces now lay to the north, just across the harbour, within sight of the defenders on Hong Kong Island, but they were practically defenceless. Just a day earlier, Churchill sent a telegram to Hong Kong Governor Mark Young. We are all watching day by day and hour by hour your stubborn defence of the port and fortress of Hong Kong. You guard a link long famous between the Far East and Europe. Every day of your resistance brings nearer our certain victory. On December 15th, bombs began to rain from the skies in an attempt to soften up the island's defenders. The Japanese ordered the Allied forces to surrender and a one-word reply came back within 15 minutes. No. On the night of the 17th of December, under cover of darkness, it's rumoured that the Japanese forces sent a small team of swimmers, including an Olympic medalist, across the harbour under cover of darkness. They disabled British searchlights and mines, clearing a path for the invading forces who had arrived the following night in small boats. Japanese High Command had demanded that the island be under their control within 10 days of hostilities commencing. This was day 11. Although the island was initially caught off guard, Indian, Canadian and local forces gave heavy resistance over the following days particularly in the Wong Nai Chung Gap, where the attackers would lose more than 800 men trying to force a route through the island. Once it fell though, the Allied forces were split in two, on the west and east side of the island. Even worse, the Japanese forces now had control of the island's reservoirs, meaning that clean drinking water was soon cut off from the Allied forces. On December 21st, Governor Young telegraphed Churchill asking for the freedom to negotiate surrender terms before Hong Kong was completely overrun. Churchill replied, There must be no thought of surrender. There were many individual moments of heroism throughout the defence of the island, and plenty of medals were handed out in the aftermath. But one, unbelievably almost, went to a dog. Gander, a Newfoundland had been gifted to the Canadian Army before the war. He travelled with the troops to Hong Kong in 1941 
and on three separate occasions throughout the battle, he defended his countrymen from attackers and died a hero after picking up a live grenade in his jaws and running back toward the enemies who had thrown it. One of the darkest moments of the invasion came on Christmas morning. Japanese forces raided St. Stephen's College, a school that had been converted into a makeshift military hospital. Many of the wounded Canadian soldiers that had been sent there to recover were mercilessly bayoneted in their beds. Doctors were killed, nurses were raped, and soldiers were tortured as the city burned. That was just the beginning of the day that would come to be known as Black Christmas, December 25th, 1941. At 3pm on Christmas Day, Mark Atchison Young travelled to the Peninsula Hotel to meet with the Japanese commanders and surrender the colony. It would be the first time a British Crown colony had surrendered to an invading force, and the defenders had held out for 17 days. Plenty of the scars of the battle can still be seen in the city today. Almost all those who survived the Battle of Hong Kong would become prisoners of war. Many would never see home again. The city will be occupied until September 1945. Mark Atchison Young, the governor, will be badly mistreated as a POW, unlike other high-ranking officials, but did eventually return to Hong Kong after the war to take up his old post, proposing reforms that would bring greater democratic freedom to the residents of Hong Kong. The city itself would recover and would go on to become one of the economic powerhouses of the world. Many of the people who laid down their lives in 1941, though, remain here, in Stanley Military Cemetery on the south side of Hong Kong Island to this day. There are hundreds of gravestones here, stretching up the hill to my left, and plenty of other names carved into memorial plaques on my right. As always with geopolitical conflicts, it's easy to forget about the individuals until you come to a place like this. These people are just as much a part of the story as the generals and the commanders, and their story should be remembered. Thanks for choosing to learn a little bit about them with me today. As usual, thank you so much for listening to this 80 Days Minisode. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can find us at 80dayspodcast.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us directly at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music comes from Thomas O'Boyle. The music used throughout today's episode is from Lee Rosevere, and the sound effects are from freesound.org users Epic Wizard, Felix Bloom, Just Kidding, and Lee Abay Norlak. The clip was from a documentary named Savage Christmas, The Battle of Hong Kong, produced by Gala Film Productions and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Thanks as always for listening and have a very Merry Christmas.